This morning, uh, what I want to do is, um, is kind of preach a, a, what I would call a plumb bob sermon. And a plumb bob is uh, probably one of the oldest inventions in humanity, I would imagine. And uh, it's a string, essentially, with a weight on the end of it. And it's uh, the man figured out some long time ago, probably Adam himself uh, knew it, but you, if you hang that, then you can figure out um, what, is, what is straight, what is true. And it's important to do that if you're building any kind of a structure, is you have to start with some straight lines somewhere, or it'll never come together. And so this, this morning, a sermon is somewhat like that, and I've entitled the sermon, I Will Build My Church, and it's a, it's a plumb line kind of sermon. When my kids were small, they and their neighborhood friends formed a club, and they named it the Guava Club. And the, the purpose of the Guava Club, as best I can remember, is that they gathered, we had some big guava bushes next to the driveway, and they would gather all the fruit off of those bushes with the intention of selling them and making a profit. So they were very industrious of stripping the bushes of all of its fruit. And the problem was is that nobody wanted to buy it. So the Guava Club uh, quickly realized that their purpose in, in organizing and coming together and so forth had to be changed. And so they changed their charter, as it were, and they went from uh, gathering guavas with the intention of selling them to turning them into juice. So now they're going to juice them. Well, that got old quick, too, and then they decided throwing them at each other was perhaps just as much fun as anything. And uh, so they just progressed from there, and, and essentially the guava club became whatever they wanted to do, whatever it was they wanted to do. And I tell you that uh, kind of silly little story because it illustrates uh, in some degree what many churches operate like, the way many churches operate. That is that they are really little more than human organizations involved in spiritual work. Spiritual work, at least as they define it. So they adopt their own rules, they establish their own programs, they elect their own leadership with little or no thought to what the Word of God requires in these things. And beloved, I think the temptation for all of us is when we begin to think about the church as belonging to us, that we will begin to then shape it in our own image. The danger in referring to Foothill as my church or your church or our church is that we are subtly communicating a certain sense of ownership that the scriptures just don't provide. This is God's church. Foothill Bible Church belongs to the Lord God. He is the one who brought it into existence. He is the one who sustains it, and he is the one who will take it to its final destination. So what I have this morning with you as we open the Word together, and this morning won't be an exposition of any particular passage. It's really more sort of a biblical theology or a, or a Bible study, as it were. We're going to look at a lot of passages together. But what I have for you is four expressions, four expressions of God's sovereignty over his church. And the reason I want to look at that with you this morning is so that we might be reminded that Foothill is God's church. Foothill Bible Church belongs to God. Now, I've been gone four weeks, 
and I've got a lot I want to say. So buckle in, and, um, and we're going to do it together. So here we are, first expression. You ready? First expression of God's sovereignty over Foothill Bible Church is simply this. God formed the church. God formed the church according to his plan. Now, let me just probably say this right here at the beginning. I'm going to be speaking about the church as, a, as an uh, institution, as an entity. In fact, the greatest entity known to man or angel is the church of Jesus Christ, of which Foothill Bible Church is a local representation. So I'm speaking more universally here now than just specific to this church, but the truths are applicable. So God formed the church according to his plan, and we see that probably beginning in Matthew chapter 16. So I'll turn you there, Matthew 16. We're going to look at a lot of verses. Matthew 16, and in particular, verse 18. God had a plan. God had a plan for the, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the church is not a, an afterthought. It is not a plan B. It is not something that God realized that he had to do something different because that which he had been doing in the Old Testament was obviously not working out. That couldn't be further from the truth. God has always had a plan. The plan is for the church, and it has been in his mind since before the foundation of the world. But I want you to notice here in Matthew 16 and verse 18 where Jesus, in response to, to Peter's amazing uh, statement of faith in verse 16, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Upon what rock? Upon the rock of the profession of the reality of who Jesus Christ really is. Notice that Jesus says, I will build my church. In other words, future tense. The church is, is to be built. And it is something that has been in the mind of God as a plan of God. Now, what would this church be? What would it look like? And for that, we go to Ephesians chapter 3, the third chapter of Ephesians, and beginning in verse 3, and we see Paul's revelation of the of the mystery church that is Jew and Gentile in one body. Ephesians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 3 where Paul says, By revelation there was made known to me the mystery. And of course a mystery is something that was known to God and then revealed to man in God's timing. There was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? Which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. What is it? To be specific, verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In other words, that Jew and Gentile would no longer be separated, but would come together as one new man, one body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, the church. Now, it's not that Gentiles would achieve salvation. Gentile salvation was no mystery. It was spoken of repeatedly in the Old Testament. It's spoken of in Genesis 12 and verse 3 in the Abrahamic Covenant, where 
God says to Abraham, right, in you will, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there as far back as the, as the covenant with Abraham, Gentile salvation was contemplated. You can even see it in, in Isaiah 42, for example, where the prophet Isaiah writes and speaks of Gentile salvation in Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, where the prophet records, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will point you as a covenant to the people and as light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Messiah will be to be a light to the nations. So Gentile salvation is not the mystery. It's not that they didn't know that Gentiles could be saved. What they did not know until it had been revealed through his holy apostles and prophets is that Gentiles and Jews would come together in salvation on equal footing before God. There would be no advantage any longer to being a Jew versus a Gentile. Well, how how did God form this church? How does he bring it about? And the answer is through spirit baptism. It is through the baptism by the Spirit of God that one is, enters into this body of Christ. And we see that, again, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. Where Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. Jesus is the baptizer, and, the, and the, he baptizes them with the Spirit or by the Spirit or in the Spirit, and he brings them together into this one new man, equal footing, the, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interestingly, if you turn to John 7, I'll flip you over to John 7, there's a discussion that some would have about when did the church begin? In other words, were all the saints of the Old Testament part of the church? Was Adam a part of the church? And the answer has to be no. The answer has to be no. And there are many, many reasons, but not the least of which is here in in John chapter 7 and verse 39. I'll pick the context up in 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then we are beholding to John's editorial note here in verse 39. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were, future tense, to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. And the, the means and entrance into the, into the church, into the body of Christ, is the baptism of the Spirit. And so we look in, in Acts, for example, in Acts chapter 1. And verses 4 and 5. Where Jesus, during the period of his ascension, of his is um, following his resurrection before his ascension. He gathers his disciples together, verse 4, and, and he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. 
which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then chapter 2, verse 4, all right, on Pentecost. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. In other words, the, the entrance into the church that had been long planned in the mind of God that, that he formed following the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is spirit baptism. And spirit baptism could not come until Christ had ascended and sent the Spirit to accomplish that great work. We see the church growing from that point on. We see God forming the church in the same chapter in verse 41. When Peter preaches that powerful sermon that same day there at, at Pentecost in verse 41, so then they who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added, notice the word added, there were added about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to whom? They were added to this, this, uh, this church that had just begun, that if we looked over in chapter 1 and verse 15, we'd see there were 120 people at that time. So they were added to the 120 disciples. And so the church is rapidly forming according to the plan of God prophesied by Jesus in Matthew 16 18, I will build my church. We see God's work through Christ and the forming of the church as well in, in the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. Where Paul writes there, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, the, the church is his body. Look down at verse 30. We are members of his body. He gave himself up to form this church. A church that in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, that Paul speaks of, 2028, as being purchased. Uh, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, here it is, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. Christ was given up for the church, to, to form the church, to bring the plan to fruition. All of which, according to Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, is according to God's eternal, predetermined plan and foreknowledge. So God forms the church according to his plan. According to his plan. That is the first mark of God's sovereignty over his church. He forms it, and he forms it according to his plan. Secondly, God fills the church according to his pleasure. God forms the church according to his plan. Secondly, he fills the church according to his pleasure. In other words, that those who become part of the church of Jesus Christ, of the body of Christ, of the community of believers, is according to the good pleasure of God. This is his church. This is his church. And we see it, again, uh, beholding to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus in the first chapter, the first chapter of Ephesians, where in verses 3 through 14, and we spent a long time looking at that, uh, probably two years ago now, and... 
we have this great doxology here where three times, once in verse 6, we see to the praise of the glory of His grace, once in verse 12, the end of the verse, to the praise of His glory, and then once in verse 14 at the end, to the praise of His glory. In other words, that God fills the church for the praise of His glory. In other words, for His pleasure. For His pleasure. It brings God glory and thus pleases Him because He deserves all glory as He fills the church of Jesus Christ. We see it again. Paul can't get away from this theme. We see it in the second chapter of the same letter that we have been made alive in Christ so that in the ages to come, the Father might show off His grace, that we are trophies of the grace of God. We are, as it were, the, as He brings many sons to glory, we are the victory pieces for all of the angelic realm to look upon and to see and praise God. Pick it up there in verse 4 of the second chapter. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Verse 7. So that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Does God love you? Yes. Unequivocally, yes. If you are a child of God this morning, he absolutely loves you. He loves you with a perfect love. A love that can, that can never be diminished by any of your failures or shortcomings. A love that can never be improved upon by any of your, quote, successes or anything you might do for him in his name. Because he loves you in the perfect love that he has for his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, with whom you are united. That is a precious truth. But understand it, it is not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth that stands behind it all is that God's great love for you this morning in Jesus Christ redounds to the praise of his glory. It is the highest goal, the greatest good. And as we respond in love for the love that he has shed abroad in our heart through the Lord Jesus Christ, then we want him to receive the glory that he so rightfully deserves. There's no competition in all of this. Does God love you? Absolutely. Do you love the glory of God this morning? I pray that it is your highest goal and good. Notice in Acts chapter 13, as God is filling this church according to his pleasure, we have Paul's statement here. He's on his first missionary journey where he says the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And so as was Paul's habit, he would go first to the synagogues and he would preach the gospel there in the synagogues. And when they proved themselves intransient to the, to the gospel and refused it, he would turn to the Gentiles. And we see this very powerfully here, beginning in verse 44 of the 13th chapter of the book of Acts. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. 
Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Notice the quote there from Isaiah 42 that we looked at earlier. Verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, God forms the church. He forms the church according to his pleasure. It is always in response to the preaching of the gospel, but the response to the preaching of the gospel is not uniform. It is not uniform. In other words, gospel preaching does not always produce visible results, and it certainly doesn't always produce the same visible results. That's true this morning in this room. Some of you this morning, many, I trust, your ears are open, your, your eyes are alert, your, your heart is being inflamed by the Word of God, and others of you are daydreaming. You're sleeping. You've perfected sleep with the eyes open, but you're sleeping. You're cold to the Word of God. And I pray that the Spirit of God would right now in this moment and in this place quicken your heart so that the Word of God would come alive to you and it would be a fire would burn of its truth. Again, in this book of Acts here, we see in Acts chapter 17, Acts 17, verses 32 and following, Where Paul is preaching the gospel here in Athens. Verse 32, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, and among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. In other words, Paul's powerful gospel preaching there on Mars Hill in the, in the center of, the, of Greek philosophy produced very scant, visible result. We have no record of a church being formed there even. And yet we then go into the next chapter, Acts chapter 18, where Paul goes on to, to uh, Corinth We pick up the narrative there in in verse 5. It says, But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on I go to the Gentiles. So you see his methodology again. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Hustus, a, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. 
And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. I have many people in this city. Gospel preaching in Athens and Corinth, two of the least likely places, one might say. And in one, there is little observable success, and in the others, this this really powerful, although problematic, church is born. And Paul spends a year and a half there, preaching and teaching the Word of God. God fills the church according to his pleasure. Why was the gospel more effective in Corinth than in Athens? Because it pleased the Lord. Because it pleased the Lord. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, reflecting on the reality that that God fills the church according to his pleasure and he causes the church to, to grow, as it were, according to his pleasure. You pick it up in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, down in verse 6, the church at Corinth is so torn up by these personality problems where I'm of Apollos and I'm of Paul and I'm of Peter. No, I'm of Jesus. Everybody following their own spiritual guru here. And, and Paul rebukes them and he says in verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. It is not the eloquence of the preacher. That's nothing. Nothing. It is God who causes the growth. And notice, let your eyes flip ahead to verse 9. Where Paul there, speaking of his ministry and Apollos' ministry and the ministry of others, he says, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. The church is God's. It's his field, it's his building. So God forms the church according to his plan. God fills the church according to his pleasure. Third, God fashions the church according to his prerogative. God fashions the church according to his prerogative. In other words, he puts the church together in its structure according to his own prerogative. He doesn't, he doesn't ask us for our permission. He doesn't seek our advice. He's directive in these things. And it begins with what we would call foundation ministries. So the second chapter of Ephesians. It's good that we went through all of this stuff in Ephesians, isn't it? Because you already know all these verses. You know what they mean. Simple stuff, right? I could probably just quote Ephesians. I could just say Ephesians 2.20 and you'd know exactly what it is, right? Okay, we'll look there. It's all right. Refresh yourself. God's household, the end of verse 19. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. In other words, God fashions the church on on the foundational ministry of the apostles and prophets. So the apostles and prophets spoke and wrote the word of God. 
So what we can say is, is that God fashions the church on the foundation of the Word of God. This is a huge point, a huge point. I would, I would say that actually this point lies at the crux of the Reformation. It is that question. What is the highest authority? Is it the church and the Scripture, or is it the Scripture and the church? In other words, does the church form the Scripture, or does the Scripture form the church? I trust you sitting here this morning as children of God understand the answer to that question. It is the Scripture that forms the people of God, that forms the church. It, it sits under and, and through and above all that the people of God are to be doing. It is the foundation as delivered by the apostles and prophets, the revelation of God, the scriptures of the New Testament. Beyond that, as God is fashioning the church according to his prerogative, he gifts individuals within the church. He gifts individuals. And 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is a great place to go when when you're thinking about gifting of God. He gives the believer spiritual gifts according to his prerogative. In other words, when you become a believer, you don't get to fill out a, you know, a sheet where you say, I'd like to have you this, and I, you know, how about a little of that, and, and so forth. God doesn't consult. He doesn't consult with any of us. He, just, he, he, he saves us, and he doesn't consult with us in that either. And as he saves us through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he gifts us as, he, as the Spirit of God resides within us, and, and, and we are enfolded into the body of Christ. We are gifted. We are gifted, and and it's given to all believers, and it's given according to the prerogative of God, and it's given for the common good. If you're a child of God this morning, you have been gifted by the Lord according to his sovereign choice over your life with the purpose that you would use and share that gift with all the other believers in the local church. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. For the common good. Verse 11. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Just as he wills. Go over to Ephesians again. Love that book. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Love that book, by the way, because it's this is about, I think it is the premier New Testament book on how the church is supposed to be. Love this book. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on to talk about the spiritual gifting. Okay. So where are we with this? Here's where we are. Foothill Bible Church is filled this morning with people who are spiritually gifted. If you're a part of this fellowship and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, which if you're part of this fellowship, you should know the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been gifted by God. You've been gifted by God and you've been gifted by God for the benefit of everybody else. Another way to say this is there's a stewardship that's been entrusted to you to, to minister what's been given to you for the benefit of everybody else. And you, you didn't get to ask God what you wanted to do. 
It's according to his prerogative. But here's something really cool about this. Foothill has all the gifted people it needs. We're not, we're not sitting here waiting and saying, you know, uh, I love baseball. You know me, you know I love baseball. And it happens to be that right now my team is potentially the greatest team to ever play the game of baseball. Season not over yet. One should not brag who puts on his armor like one who takes it off. However, now, where was I going with this? <laughs> they're good. I'm telling you, they're good. Oh, I know what it is. As a sports team, it's always kind of, if we could only pick up one more player, right? If we could just get first-round draft pick or, you know, whatever it is, if we could just get this one, then we'd have it all together. But see, the church never is in that position. We're not, we're not sitting here waiting for, you know, the next Heisman Trophy winner to walk through the door, and then we're going to have a great season. Everything we need. Everything we need, we have. It's been given to us by God to build up the church to the praise of the glory of his grace. It just means you and I need to put our helmets on, snap our chin straps, and get in the game. And get in the game. God gives spiritual gifts to all. But according to his prerogative, he also gives gifted men to the church. Again, the same chapter, verse 11, and he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastor teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How long does the church need these gifted teachers, pastor teachers? Answer? Until the church achieves full maturity. When will the church achieve full maturity? When Christ comes again. Because a true and living church is always birthing new believers that need to be taught. And you and I, we're not, we haven't arrived either, right? We may have made progress, but we're not here. We're not at the finish line yet. So we all need the teaching, and we'll continue to need the teaching of these gifted men until the Lord takes us or comes for his church. Now, these gifted men that God raises up, you see over in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 again, they are raised up to lead the church. Acts 20, 28. Paul, they're speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. Did I tell you I love Ephesians? Did I say that? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The Holy Spirit made them overseers of the church. But the church doesn't belong to them. The church does not belong to, to these gifted men. It doesn't belong to the overseers. It doesn't belong to the elders. 
It is the care of the church that has been assigned to them by the owner of the church. 1 Peter chapter 5. It is the care that has been assigned. It is not ownership. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfeigning fading crown of glory, allotted to your charge, allotted to your charge. The church does not belong to the elders. Now, I want you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to do some biblical reasoning with you. So we talk about fashioning the church according to his prerogative. 1 Timothy chapter 3, in verses 1 through 13, speak of the requirements and responsibilities of the elders. In other words, the character qualifications of elders and deacons. They're given in a, in a, in a, in a letter written to Timothy, who's pastoring the church at you guessed it, Ephesus. Told you, I love that place. But what I want you to see is beginning in verse 14. Paul says, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. In case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, here's where I want you to reason with me. Paul writes to Timothy a letter. In the letter here, he, he speaks of the non-negotiable characteristics and qualifications of those that are to be in leadership among the people of God, the elders and the deacons. And then following that, he says, I'm writing this letter to you, because I, I'm hoping to be there soon, but in case I'm delayed, you need to know how the church of God is to be organized. What kind of men are to be elders and deacons? These kind of men. These kind of men. And it would be that the whole congregation would hear this letter. It was written to Timothy, but it was for the benefit of the congregation. So the congregation themselves know what kind of men should be leaders among us. How do we choose them? Do we look for the most successful business people? Do we pick the wealthiest? Do we pick the smartest? Do we pick the one with the most political clout? How is it done? We know how they are picked in civil matters, don't we? And often we cringe. But among the church of God, there is a, there is a God-given um, 
character test for leadership. The men who do not meet this test do not belong. They do not belong. This is not just for the elders themselves to self-evaluate, although it's for that. It's for the congregation to evaluate its own leaders. We have a business meeting next week. If you're a member here at Foothill, you'll be asked to, to vote to affirm the, the elders and, and deacons for another year. The basis of your, of your decision should be here. It would be worthwhile to, to review these in your own mind as you, as you think about so that when you come in to, to cast your vote, as it were, that you're evaluating biblically. If these men meet this test, then the answer should be yes. And if they don't, it should be no. We ask on the ballot, by the way, that if you vote no, please provide the reason for your no. If you vote no because you don't believe they meet the test, then please show us, tell us, what verse is it? Where do they fall short? They would want to know for their own benefit. And we would want to know. This congregational involvement in the the choosing of its leadership is a pattern of the New Testament. It's choosing of of their leadership and, and the plurality of this leadership. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, this is Paul's first missionary journey. He has planted churches. Now he's circling back and and he's visiting these churches. Verse 23, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Isn't that interesting? These churches were planted 18 months prior. And Paul is now appointing elders in these churches. In other words, that, that within these churches, there, there were those men who, had, who demonstrated the characteristics of Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, and Paul appoints them into the position of eldership. From that point forward, the congregation will now take care of its own leadership. In Titus chapter 1, we see the same basic model. In Titus chapter 1, Paul tells Titus in verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So the the initial leadership would be appointed by the the apostle or his representative who, who planted these churches and got them going, but from that point forward, it's not that Paul swung back through all the time and, and said, okay, you know, it was going to be this one this year and so-and-so. No, he got the ball started. And he gave the, to the congregation the, the means and mechanism to bring their own leadership to the forefront. That's just, where am I at here? Oh, I'm going to skip over that. If you got my notes, I just skipped something. 
I'm going to go to number four. If you got my notes, you know what I skipped. If you didn't, you're not missing anything. God formed the church according to his plan. He filled it according to his pleasure. He fashioned it according to his prerogative forth. And finally, he focuses the church according to his priorities. Okay, remember when I started, I talked about the Guava Club, and you know they, wanted, they did this, and then they wanted to do that, and then they did the other thing. What are the priorities for the church? What are we to be about? Right? We, can, we can be involved in many, many different activities that can be good activities, but they are not essential activities. They are not essential activities. Sometimes being involved in too many good activities can become the enemy of the essential activities. And that which God requires of his church can somehow fade into the background of all of these other good things, meeting people's needs. So what should the church be about? What is essential to the church? It's really pretty simple. It begins with prayer. It begins with prayer. Paul says in Romans 12, 12, be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4.2, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it. Ephesians 6.18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. 1 Thess 5.17, pray without ceasing. Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Okay. These are all written in letters to churches to churches. Should individual Christians pray? Of course. Nothing's more natural than to pray and to talk to your heavenly Father. But these, these commandments to pray are given in the context of a church, of a gathered body. These are letters that are intended to be read publicly. To pray. A church must pray. Secondly, Proclamation, a church must preach the gospel. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Remember, this is the letter where Paul said there in, in uh, verse 15, right, that, that, that uh, I'm expected to come, but in case I'm delayed, I'm writing so you know what to do, right? For the church is the, is the pillar in support of the truth. So, until I get there, read the Scriptures publicly, exhort and teach the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, where he says there, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's a lot of, of um, ways to impress the solemnity of this upon Timothy. So what is it, Timothy, that you must do? What do you be solemnly charged for? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. A church must preach the gospel. It must preach the gospel. So prayer, proclamation, third, discipleship. Discipleship. 
In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, the Great Commission is given. And that Great Commission is nothing more and nothing less than a command to plant churches. To make disciples is a shorthand way of talking about making or planting churches. In fact, I think I can be bold enough to say that any evangelistic effort that fails to enfold new converts to Christ into a local church is not New Testament evangelism. The purpose of preaching the gospel and making disciples is to build the church. It's to enfold people into the church. Jesus told his 11 disciples there in Acts chapter 1 there to be his witnesses, right? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the furthest part of the earth, Acts 1.8. That's not to go around randomly just like talking to people about Christ. It's to plant churches, And that's exactly what happened. His churches were planted in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the furthest part of the earth. And the church is still fulfilling that great commission. We are continuing to plant churches. For Paul, this is what his whole life was about. You can go to Acts chapter 13. Acts 13, where Paul is set aside, right, by the Spirit... Barnabas and Paul, verse verse 2, Acts chapter 13, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice that expression, for the work. Then Paul and Barnabas went out from there on the first missionary journey. And for 18 months they moved strategically from place to place, preaching the gospel first to the Jews, and then when they repudiated it, to the Gentiles, establishing churches. Which then, according to chapter 14, they came back around through again. Right? We'll pick it up in verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Adaliah. From there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God. Notice the expression, for the work that they had accomplished. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. The work of disciple-making is the work of church planting. It's the work of church planting. You know, the New Testament church is an amazing entity. We really think about it. Under the Old Testament system, one had to come to the temple. It was set like a jewel in the crossroads of the earth where all the caravan routes from east and west passed by, and there on the hill sat Jerusalem, and above Jerusalem sat the temple. And all would look upon it. And and these strange people who who lived in the mountains and would come down and interact with the caravans. And they dressed funny and they ate funny. and And they just, their behavior patterns were funny. And their worship was strange. And it was all designed to to draw people in to see the Lord God. 
The New Testament church is so different. It's not come and see. It's go and tell. Go and tell. So now it's to, it's to go everywhere and, and, to, and to introduce people to the living God. And there's such flexibility now in the, in the New Testament church, right? I mean, we don't all have to dress in, in these odd ways, and, and we don't eat certain restricted diets, and, and, you know, and every aspect of our lives is not governed by, by ritual and, and law and so forth. We, we just have the ability for the church to go anywhere, to meet under a tree, to, to meet in a building, to, to, to be with people who are very educated and to be with people who are poorly educated. Anywhere and everywhere the church can go. It is a go-and-tell religion. Not based on ritual. In which the, the person meets God in spirit and truth. Prayer. Proclamation, discipleship, fourth and finally, the church is to be about fellowship. The church is to be about fellowship, koinonia. The basic meaning of this term, koinonia, is participation. Participation. Fellowship is participation. It is participation together as family members in the household of God. Christian fellowship inherently involves sharing and sacrifice. That's what it means to participate together. We see this reality, by the way, in the number of times that the word koinonia is used in reference to financial support in the New Testament for Christians who are in need. Let me just run through a few of them for you. you can, if you've got the notes, you don't need to. Otherwise, you can jot some of them down. But you can check this out. It's not always translated. In fact, I don't think in any of them it's translated uh, fellowship. But it is the underlying word or verb. Romans 12, 13. Romans 15, 26. Galatians 6, 6. Philippians 4, 15. 2 Corinthians 8, 4. 2 Corinthians 9.13, Hebrews 13.16, all of those places. is talking about money. It's talking about material sharing with other believers, and yet the word that's being used is fellowship. It is fellowship. It is a sharing. It is a sacrificial sharing with others who are part of the family of God. It's a recognition that the church is a family. Now, often we think, when we talk about fellowship, we think about food, right? Fellowship equals food. They both begin with F. But fellowship does not equal food. You can eat together with someone and not have fellowship. However, there is something about eating together There is something about eating together, particularly in the intimacy of one's own home, that that acts as an accelerant or, or a facilitator of true fellowship, the true sharing, the participation. And that is as we share our lives together, what God is doing in our lives, as we speak to one another about the gospel, as we exhort and encourage one another. Then we have true fellowship. The the meal is not essential, but the meal is helpful. It's helpful. Mm -hmm. 
We fellowship around the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you get together with other believers, may that nugget be instructive for how you spend the time. How you spend the time. Beloved, because God forms, God fills, God fashions, and God focuses the church, and he does it all as he wants, it's clear the church belongs to him and not us. Foothill Bible Church belongs to God. Many churches lose sight of that reality. We must not lose sight of it. It is the plumb line that keeps everything running nice and straight. We're going into a new ministry year together. Lots of hopes, lots of dreams, lots of plans. And in it all, may we not lose sight of whose church this really is. May God apply the truth of his word to each and every one of our hearts and exactly where we need it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the most amazing grace that has made us part of your church. For reasons known only to you, our Father, in space and time, you reached out to us and opened our eyes to the gospel. Where Jesus became beautiful to us, we saw him in his glory. And we were drawn to him. We have now embraced him by faith and your spirit has taken residence within us and, and you have placed us into this local body. Our Father, may you help us to value your church and to see it as you see it. Blood-bought with the most precious blood of your own son. Father, may you help us to to live our lives together in such a way that we do not take away from this reality, that we don't contradict it. Father, help us as we go forward to love one another. By this, all men will know that we are disciples of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.